I mentioned earlier in the program that the um, one one of the things I think is driving this campaign, and it's invisible. I think there's a whole lot of people fed up with the chickification of our culture, and it's not anything to do with anti-woman or anti-feminism or anti-female. It has to do with the fact that there is an assault on manhood. There's an assault on masculinity. Masculinity then automatically is toxic. Masculinity is automatically barbaric. Men in their natural state are just a bunch of bullies and brutes who even mistreat their own children. And this is something that has been creeping into our society for years, for decades, ever since the modern era of feminism in the late 60s, early 70s uh, got going and revved up to full speed. And the chickification of our culture, you find it everywhere. You find it in the news business, especially. Uh, Not on camera, but off. And not the writers, but the editors and the assignment editors, the producers, and so forth. And men men do whatever is necessary to attract women. Men, it's not hard for women to wrap around a finger. But I think a lot of men are getting fed up with it. I think a lot of people are, are, are fed up with it. Uh, and again, it's not an anti-woman thing. It is a... It's a fear over over the fact that manhood is being lost. Uh, manhood, uh, masculinity, the strong male influence of a father on a family has, has been denuded. It has been criticized. It has, uh, and so there's less of it. And there are... There's, there's a story about that, which is why I'm reviving this. There's a story about this very thing today. Now, I have been, once again, one of the few consistently over these past two decades, 20 years and more, talking about the dangers of the chickification of our culture. And not, in again, not with any animus toward women. It is, at their, 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 but there has been an assault on men being men. Men being who they naturally are. And it's not good. And we've got evidence of it out there. Now, before I get into that, here's a story that appears to have nothing to do with it, but it has everything to do with it. You may have heard that the Big Ten Conference announced some time ago they weren't going to play college football this year. You know why? Well, I don't want to make anybody mad, but um, there was a lot of fear. A lot of fear. Virus. How are we going to control it? Uh, And there was so much pressure. There was pressure from the Coronavirus Task Force. Pressure from Dr. Fauci. Pressure from Dr. Burks. Pressure from everywhere. Don't do it. Don't do it. But not everybody decided not to do it. The National Football League decided to play. I mean, they never decided not to. I mean, the National Football League never wavered during this entire year. They were going to start their season. There were some adjustments. 
when it was scheduled to start. There was no preseason this year, and there was no... Uh, there were a lot of adjustments made. There was no preseason travel. There were no joint practices. But the season started on time this past weekend. So now here comes the Big Ten. Some, uh, some other colleges are playing. LSU is going to play. The SEC. So the Big Ten reversed itself. Big Ten says, you know what? We're going to play. They're going to start their season in mid-October, mid to late October. And they're going to play, and they're going to play a full season and get to vie for the national championship, Big Ten, all that. Now look at this. USA Today, Christine Brennan, female sports writer. Big Ten's decision to play football signals darkest day in conferences sports history. I have to tell you, the and, and one of the reasons why the Big Ten reversed itself, because they saw that the NFL has figured out how to do it. They saw that it can be done. So there's a little Me Too-ism here. Hey, we want to get in on this too. If we can play, we want to play. They realized they jumped the gun. Their decision-making was a little flawed. So here comes Christine Brennan and a whole lot of the sports media, which has also been very chickified. See, the left was happy. The left was happy that they had scared people enough to cancel college football. They wanted to get rid of the pageantry. They wanted to get rid of the American flags on parade. They wanted to get rid of the national anthem. They wanted to get rid of all of the celebrations of American traditionalism and institutionalism that was part of college football. They wanted to get rid of it, and they were ecstatic. When the Big Ten said they weren't playing, if you look, if you look at the states where the where the college conferences have decided to not play and play, they're blue and red. Democrat states, where the conference headquarters are, decided not to play. Red states, we're playing. And they were so happy. The left was so happy they had scared people enough to cancel college football. Now... Now the sports writers, including a bunch of women, are melting down over the Big Ten's reversal. Let me give you a pull quote here. While much of the blame for the awful about face goes to the university presidents who chose money and football over sanity and caution, the new Big Ten commissioner, Kevin Warren, also contributed greatly to this PR nightmare. This is a man clearly... In way over his head, see? Oh, yeah, what a brute. This guy, all he cares about is money and football and... What the hell else is the Big Ten about? It's always about money and football. Everything is about money. The biggest secret in the world, apparently. This poor guy, writes Christine Brennan, this poor guy was outmaneuvered by a few loudmouth coaches, for heaven's sake. No matter how he explains it, it's clear that he and the league flip-flopped so that Ohio State can try to win a national title and the Big Ten can still make lots of money off the backs of 18 to 22-year-olds in the middle of a pandemic. So you see, college football is nothing but exploitation.
That's right. Nothing but a bunch of young kids being exploited. No. Do you realize these kids that were not going to play college football this year, do you realize what the impairment on their futures was going to be? For many of these people, and you can say sadly or not, but it is what it is. For many of these people, football is a way out. Football is a way out. Football is. Like any other number of sports, football is a ticket to success and prosperity. And they were just going to take this year away from them. Have it taken away from them. It was going to have severe limitations on their potential and their future. But now we find out that all of this is just not about any of that. It's about exploiting young 18 to 22 year olds. So as she writes here, as we move into October and November, into what the experts say will be our worst days as COVID combines with the flu. The stops and starts of the conferences that are trying to play now tell us there are likely to be postponements and perhaps cancellations of Big Ten games. So you, you have, it's always amazed me that so many people in sports writing don't like sports. It's always men and women. I'm not. It's not a a gender thing. It just amazes me how many of the people that actually cover sports don't like it, find things wrong with it. Now to the story. It is by Alex Perez. He's a Cuban American writer from Miami. The story appears in the Daily Caller, and the headline of the story: the multicultural male coalition that could give Trump four more years. Wait a minute, what? The multicultural male coalition that could give Trump four more years. Let me share with you how his piece opens here. And, and, and what this is about, the disappearing masculinity in American culture that Donald Trump reminds everybody of positively, that we miss it that it has a place. Mr. Perez writes, a year after the 2016 election, I overheard my first conversation in which two young men of color discussed the political issues of the day. I don't remember what they were going on about, but the fact that they were going on about politics with such fervor was what struck me immediately as young men discussing politics. Why, that was a rarity in my working-class Miami neighborhood, where typically it was older guys who engaged in these sometimes heated discussions. Sitting across from these two guys at Starbucks, I noted their interaction as an entertaining anomaly. I chalked it up to the current hyper-politicized cultural moment in which anyone at any time might surprise you with their clearly newfound interest in politics. Which is to say that I expected to encounter no more than a handful of these political squabbles between young men of color in the ensuing years of the Trump era, as the possibility of a broad political realignment driven by this traditionally disinterested demographic went against all conventional wisdom, meaning young men of color talking about politics? Never gonna happen. Not enough of them are gonna engage in it to make a difference. Far-fetched. 
Boy, was I wrong, he writes. In the months and years to follow, all over Miami, in bars, coffee shops, at the gym, I would overhear and was sometimes pulled into these rudimentary political conversations between young men of color. And what was immediately obvious was that a majority, if not all of these young men, were brought into their nascent political awareness by issues relating to their masculinity and manhood. An archetype emerged. These were young men who never thought about politics until politics knocked on their door and made them aware of its existence, as in, hello, Donald Trump. Like so many, personal grievance is what drove them into the political arena and what was driving their politics. The gist of their beef? When the hell did it stop being okay to be a regular dude? When did it stop being okay to be a guy? When did being a guy all of a sudden become a negative? When 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 did it make a target? Now, let me give you some pull quotes. It's a, it's a long story. I have to touch a long story. We'll link to it at RushLimbaugh.com. But what, what Mr. Alex Perez is saying here, there are a lot of young Hispanic and black men who are sick of not being allowed to be masculine. And they are going to vote for Trump. And nobody knows they are out there. And this is, folks, this is one of the reasons why I love that Donald Trump celebrates our heroes. Donald Trump celebrates American greatness. Donald Trump promises an ongoing American greatness, a revival of it and a continuation of it. Donald Trump is fearless in talking about his love and respect for everything to do with this country. He will not concede a single point to the people that hate it. Not a single point. He stands up for it. He defends it. He loves America, is proud of it. And we are blessed to have him in the position he is in. Because without him, can you name somebody else who would be defending the country you love and you believe is great and you believe deserves to be defended? Can you think of anybody who would step into his uh, into his role? I mean, you might be able to, but you'd have to think about it for a while. I love when Trump defended the, that army ranger he gave a medal of freedom to this week. Uh, freed seventy five hostages in Iraq. The helicopter heroes who saved two hundred and forty six people in a ring of fire. Donald Trump celebrates the heroes. He tells everybody who the heroes are. He credits this country for creating them, for celebrating them. Try this pull quote from Alex Perez's story. All this is to say that the Democrat Party is now the party of women and those who identify with the overly feminine sensibility. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just the way it is. The Democrat Party is now the party of women. And you hear them talking about the females of white white suburban women, this, white suburban women, that. We've got to make sure we don't make a man. We've got to go out and find a way to relate to them. We gotta... And whatever, they're never wrong. 
They're never wrong. Whatever they believe, we got to find a way to convince these women that we're on their side. We don't dare tell them they're ever wrong about anything. I'm talking about politics here. Now, there's nothing wrong with this being your cup of tea, of course, but Democrats shouldn't be surprised when young men of all stripes are turned off by a party that is completely devoid of any masculine energy. And let me tell you, Mr. Perez is so on the money here. You take a look at the big names in the Democrat Party. You don't. Well, the sentence finishes itself. Another pull quote here. I suspect this trend has been obvious for some time now to anybody who lives in an urban center. But recently, Charles Blow, the New York Times, was caught off guard by the new reality and tweeted, Today, my friends in Atlanta, who are black, saw a Facebook message from their old barber, who is black, imploring them to vote for Trump. Don't think that Trump's message doesn't resonate with a certain sector of black men. Also, barbers have a lot of sway in the black community. Now, Blow's alarm comes to the realization that young, multicultural males treasure and value masculinity, and that's how they see Trump. This is the final um, little observation here from the column by Alex Perez in the Daily Caller about the possibility of a new masculinity benefiting Trump. He says it's an open question as to whether young men of color will actually turn out for Trump, but if the Republican convention was any indication, the Republican Party is making a play for them. Much has been said of the convention's America is great message, but what was played up almost as much, whether intentionally or not, was the power and virtue of traditional masculinity. There was Senator Tim Scott's speech in which he traced his family's rise from slavery to the highest reaches of American power, delivered in the oratory style of a man who had never given up, whose familial legacy of overcoming nearly insurmountable odds would make the thought of accepting his plight inconceivable. The speech spoke to all Americans, of course, but it can't go unnoticed that it was delivered by a man of color who had risen to the top in large part due to classic masculine virtues, stoicism and stick-to-itiveness. Those are very powerful virtues. Then there was the Cuban-American old-timer, Maximo Alvarez, self-made businessman, and like Tim Scott, the epitome of the American dream. He spoke with the masculine ferocity and power of Vince Lombardi. The greatest example of masculine strength at the Republican convention occurred when Madison Cawthorn, a disabled young man running for North Carolina's 11th congressional district, stood up from his wheelchair after delivering a barn burner of a speech. It was... An incredibly moving moment, made all the more so by the fact that he was flanked by a couple of friends who assisted him as he stood, but then they vamoosed. They got out of the way once he made it up. Once he succeeded, 
in his objective. He engaged in a prime example of masculine strength as well as brotherly kinship. He accepted help. Masculinity doesn't mean that you're all in it all by yourself and to hell with anybody else. So these three speeches, two delivered by men of color, made a case for the nobility of traditional masculinity. He says, I have no doubt that these three speeches spoke to young men of color in a way they could understand. You are an American man. Stand up. Do what needs to be done. Don't cower. Mr. Alvarez says, I, I can't imagine a better message, not only for men of color, but all men, a message that might drive them to vote in record numbers in November. He's guessing. He's not guaranteeing anything. 